I want to take you to uh, um, Revelation first, Revelation 4, and then we're going to go to Matthew. And and I'm just going to refer to this. You can turn to it. You know, chapters 2 and 3 are the seven letters to the uh, churches. You know, chapter 1 is John's revelation. I mean, the revelation of Jesus, where he sees Jesus in his glorified state, and he can't hardly take it in. He can't hardly describe it, that uh, he's walking among these seven candles, and he's got seven stars in his right hand, and, and it's explained to John that those candles are the seven churches and the stars are the pastors or the, it says angels, but could be very well the messenger of those churches. And, and then he starts giving John a, a letter for each of those cities, each of the churches that's in those cities. And the very next words after that last letter to the church at Laodicea, that's, that's number seven, to him that overcometh, and the very next words, remember these were, these were not chapter divisions as you were reading it. It's the very next words is this. John says, and after this, after getting that last letter from Jesus himself, after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And it's almost like, what happened in 2 and 3, all these letters, these seven churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, those all right there in the same kind of region, everything shifts to heaven. The whole, almost the rest of the entire book is in heaven. All of those plagues and all those judgments and, and the, the seals that are broken, all of those are originated in heaven. All of that happened in heaven. They would break the seal, and then he says, this happened on earth. They'd break another seal. This happened on earth. And, but it was all like, all of that was coming out of heaven down to earth. And the whole focus from there on was practically what was going on above him. And he says, that door, a voice came through that door saying, come up here, and I will show you what is to come after this. So that defines everything else. Revelation is a great book. Don't shy away from it because some of the imagery is, is kind of hard to understand. Just, just take your time and go through it. My daddy used to say it is the only book in the Bible that guarantees you a blessing if you read it. Blessed are the people who read this. So all of this is transpiring in heaven. John sees a throne. He hears his voice come up. And I want to talk about heaven in connection with hell. Because those are the two eternities. Those are the two destinations. And the only destination in every person will arrive at one or the other. Those two. There's an interesting title of, a, of one of C.S. Lewis's book that he wrote in the, around 46, I think, 1946, somewhere along in there. And it's called The Great Divorce. Has any of you ever read that? The Great Divorce. Well, I know uh, um, I've talked to a couple people who read it. Um, he, in the preface of that book, it's, it's kind of an unusual book. C.S. Lewis, you know, would you th expect anything else but an unusual book? The Great Divorce, he took that title because late in the 18th century, um, William Blake, who wrote poetry, and he was kind of an odd person, 
1790, wrote a a poetic prose, you might say. It wasn't long. It was the marriage of heaven and earth, or heaven and hell. The marriage of heaven and hell. And I read it, and it is weird. Um, he's weird. In fact, I think when you research William Blake, people say, he was odd. He, he was out there. I don't think I've heard anybody say he was crazy, but that might fit him too. Uh, Lewis did refer to him as a genius because he had all these images in his head. And he wrote a book saying that heaven and hell are not really cut and dry. They can kind of blend. They can kind of move between the two. Of course, he did not believe in the biblical view of the, the eternities. Well, what Lewis did was he even says in the preface that he decided if Blake wrote The Marriage of Heaven and Hell... He's going to write about the divorce of heaven and hell. The total separations of those two realities that neither one of them share in anything about the other. And it is an unusual book because it, it, it's kind of like a Narnia type book. It's all kind of imagination imagery. And one of the things that Lewis says, and he said, I need to give credit to the unbending... Um, let me just give you the preface. The, the very start of that book in chapter 1 is there's a, a bus queue, a line for a bus in a dark town, dreary town, that is really like hell. And people are lining up to catch a bus to explore heaven. And in this, and in this book, it shows the great difference. People who try to navigate from there to heaven don't fit there. And I could go into all kinds of things about the problems they have when they get there because they're not, they don't fit there. He was, he was making a point that the two are so different, you cannot wed the two. Okay, you follow me? And he says, I need to give credit to a, an American comic author in a science fiction book whose hero went back into, into the past and found raindrops that were coming down as fast as bullets and sandwiches that nobody was powerful enough to bite into because you can't change what's in the past. That was the whole point. So you just have to go through the book to realize that, oh, that's where he borrowed that. He's borrowed science fiction stuff from an American author. But the point, the point in this is an amazing. I've only had one person that I've talked to that's in the church that's went through that book, and I went through it multiple times because I just think it's so interesting how he denotes the difference. Now, we're going to go to Matthew here in just a moment about the, these two eternities, um, that heaven and hell is totally separate realities, and it... it we, we have to come to the conclusion that every person we look at is going to go to one or the other. Every person we encounter will end up one or the other. There's not an in-between. There's not purgatory. There's not, nothing like that. And I believe Jesus makes it really clear there's only two ways to go. There's a wide way and there's a narrow way, Right? And so, 
And we're going to dive into this here in just a moment. Let's look in Matthew 21, if you are there. Um, you remember Jesus saying, don't fear the person who can kill the body. But fear the one who has the power to cast both body and soul into hell. It's amazing how often Jesus talked about hell. You know, reading Blake's, Blake, uh, I, I read it, and it is weird, but he quote, he, he refers to Isaiah, he refers to Old Testament prophets, he, he refers to biblical things, but he doesn't believe in that stark contrast between heaven and hell. Are there two words that have a greater contrast than heaven and hell? When you say good, bad, and, and really that doesn't even describe heaven and hell. Because if someone says the big surprise when we get to heaven is to see people that, that we didn't think would be there. And then we're surprised that some of the people we expected to be there are not there. Because this is how we judge things. We judge things on this plane. You know, we have no idea what other thieves are getting saved just before they, they die. They're not dying on a cross, but they're dying in a hospital. They're dying in an ICU. Who, who knows how many are going to get in? And then when their old friends, you know, or maybe their antagonists get to heaven and say, you're here? <laughs> yeah, it's like... Two minutes before I died, I committed my life to the Lord. Like, okay, who thinks that's unfair? Well, there's people, <laughs> when Jesus tells the story, thinks that's not fair. But that's, that's the whole thing about these two eternities. And I remember talking to a teenager, you know, that I was trying to witness to. And she, she was just really hard. She was standoffish. And she was actually in our youth group. This was years and years ago years ago and and I asked her about hell and she said that's just a figment of people's imagination there's no such place as hell and so I this was my follow-up question I said so when Jesus talked about hell he didn't know what he's talking about that was just a figment of his imagination she would not go there <laughs> there was enough fear in her she did throw her backpack over her shoulder and walked out on me uh, but when Jesus talked about heaven and hell, he was not talking about imaginary things. These are real, these are realities. In Matthew 21, there's a parable of sons that Jesus speaks about. And uh, you'll find this in verse 28. Now, before I read 28, just before this, Jesus' authority is questioned. Who gave you the authority to do all of this? And so what he did, he followed that up asking them about John. Well, what about John? Was his baptism of men or of earth or of heaven? Was it of God? And they wouldn't answer. So this follows, immediately follows Jesus being challenged on his authority by these antagonists. So he tells, there's a reason why he goes to this parable right after this conversation. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son 
and said to the same and said the same thing. He answered, "I will, sir." But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? It wasn't a hard answer to come up with, was it? The first they answered. Then immediately he gets to the point that is really piggybacking off of the authority of John and his own authority. Jesus said to them, listen to this, truly I tell you, tax collectors, publicans if you're in the King James or New King James, publicans, tax collectors, and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now, I really doubt that they appreciated that. When they really prided themselves on being righteous. And he tells them that those who are known for stealing and shortchanging people and those who live in depravity are heading into the kingdom of God ahead of you. And then he connects it with John in verse 32, for John came to show you the way of righteousness. John came to show you the true way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. I love this next line because this is why those tax collectors and prostitutes are getting in ahead of him. It says, but tax collectors and prostitutes did. Did what? They believed they must have been on the shore of the on the bank of the, uh, the Jordan River, when he says, repent and be baptized, and down in the water went some publicans and prostitutes. And he says, they believed him, and you didn't. Even after you saw this, you did not, and be- you did not repent and believe him. What he's saying is, they get in, and you're not getting in. They're the ones who may have told by their life, I'm not going to go and do what God wants me to do. And later after meeting John, they do. He says, but you're the people who tell God you're going to do what he wants you to do, and then you don't do it. Those people are getting in ahead of you. They're getting in. They're getting into the eternity. They're they're the ones that are qualified for heaven. Being good does not qualify us for heaven. Heaven is not for good people. Heaven is for redeemed people. Because there's none righteous, no, not one. There's nobody that's good when you compare our goodness to God. And it's that standard. For all have sinned and fallen short of what standard? The glory of God, God's presence, God's character. He says we're all in a deficit. We all have a deficit when it comes to God. And there's no way we can make up that deficit except through the gift of his salvation. And this is what he's talking about. People getting into the kingdom of God ahead of them. Two chapters later, we're going to go to chapter 23 here if you want to hang in there with me. But two chapters later, Jesus begins to caution these same people. And he exposes something. I think every time he talked to them, he exposed something. And he exposed the poison of a religious spirit. The poison of people being self-righteous. Look at verse 13. And there's a series of these. I'm just going to pull these two out because they have to do with the eternities. Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. 
What an indictment. You're impeding people from getting in. You're slamming the door of heaven on them. How so? You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. I mean, this is a scary statement that he's, he's speaking to them. Woe to you. And he's not finished with the eternities here. He's not finished. He's really going to get very specific here in verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. He said, you're, you're heading to Gehenna. That's, it's not Hades translated here. It's Gehenna, which is the, taken from the valley of Hinnon where they burned dead animals. and it, It's the valley of Hinnon. And, and it's really usually translated hell fire. When Jesus said, you'll be subject to hell fires, he's, he's talking about the eternal state for the wicked. And he's telling them that not only are you doing this, you're keeping other people from getting in. You're running, you're running interference for them, getting, for them experiencing salvation. And you go two more chapters after that, in chapter 25, and it gets even more interesting because Jesus is winding down his public ministry. When you go to chapter 26, the very next thing you see is his interaction at, in Bethany with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus and, and the disciples. He's no longer... After 25, you do not see Jesus interacting in public ministry, exchanging discourse with people like he is right here, talking to the Pharisees, warning them. Chapter 25 is almost an entire thing about warning these people who are keeping people away from the truth. In verse 31 is where we're going to go. This is, remember, this is his last interaction, and watch this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Well, that last line is, is really thought-provoking. We're told that God's plan for redemption and the Lamb being the Lamb of God was really commissioned to be slain from the foundation of the world, from, from the very origination of creation. God knew ahead of time what was going to happen and had already planned redemption. Already planned that where he was, that his children would be with him. Because this is what he's saying. The separation of the, the sheep would go to the right, the goats go to the left, and he said to the sheep, come and enter into this inheritance which has been prepared for you from the beginning of creation. I've waited for this. I've planned.
planned this. And he says this to them. Now, their, their question, and, and you know this really very well, they will say, well, uh, how, how, does it, how, do we, how, how do we qualify for that? He said, because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you attended to me. And, and he goes through all these and says, when did we do that? Well, when you've done it to the least of people, you did it to me. Oh. Now, let, let me ask, did that qualify them for heaven by doing all that? Are they, or did they do that because of his presence in their lives? Because he saw why they were doing that. Because when you were doing it, you was actually doing it unto me. He saw that what they had was what he wanted them to be. And boy, it gets interesting later on that. In verse 34... Prepare for you since the creation of the world. I want you to go on down and follow what happens in verse 41. I mean, this is, this is, these are earth-shaking words here. And we'll finish up with this section. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And you, if you look up, it, it is two exact words, eternal and fire. A continuum of fire. He said, this is what you're going to enter in, and this was prepared for the devil and his angels. What, what disqualified them? Because he, he tells them, says, because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me drink. When I was sick, you didn't take care of me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. You know, when I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And he said, when did we not do that? When you did not do it to the least of people. It really was showing that their true character was about themselves and not other people. Is it? Is it? Is it pretty much common to say that when Jesus has a hold of our lives, our lives and our eyes will be outward? doesn't mean that we don't know about our own health and our own care and making sure we, you know, take care of our lives. But our interest is beyond ourselves. It has to be. Because he said, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are ripe already to harvest. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but labor is few. Lift up your eyes, you'll see that the harvest is there. You can see the harvest like I see the harvest. Boy, we need to see the harvest a little bit more, don't we? The last verse in chapter 25 is just a, a summary of the two different groups, the sheep and the goats. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. When you think about that, when you look at that statement, do you think this is kind of a serious matter? That there's not anybody granted an exception here. There's just one is eternal punishment, one is eternal life. 
I think, I think we need to get serious about this. I don't know. It's, it's just a thought I had. I, I really think we, this needs to, like, command us. Now, what is this? December the 5th? Is that today's date? What if we don't have another day? I'm not talking about an accident claiming us. What if we're what if we're on God's clock and it's pretty close to finishing? And we just we just think Christmas is going to get here and our plans that we have is going to get here and everything's going to be. We just we got we got our month planned out. We got next year. We got we got plans. You know we got plans in January. We got plans. We got church calendar. We're filling in things. We we've already got. Our speakers for next year's Christmas around the world. You know, Larry and Melinda Henderson. We, and, and, and I think you have to do that. But what about daily living out our witness? Knowing that we don't know how much time we have. And there's only two eternities. There's, there's not an exception. We, like, we just want all good people to go to heaven. And when people... Die, and we don't really know anything about their faith. It's it's tragic. You talking about being difficult? I've I've been asked to preach funerals for people I did not know. You know, and I what did I say about them? And 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 in most in some of those cases, uh, it was probably more likely that they weren't a believer. But I didn't go. I didn't even go there. But one of them that I was asked to preach was a neighbor of some people who just started attending church. We pastored in Jacksonville, and, and says, "Can you? He, you know, he he didn't go to church. Can you do his memorial?" And I said, "Well, I'll do whatever I can." And I mean, ten minutes before the funeral, I'll never forget. She walks up to me. She says, "Listen, by the way, I want you to get up there and tell everybody that so and so went to heaven." <laughs> I said. Well, you probably got the wrong person then. You, you know, you, I'm not the right person to do this. You can, you can get somebody else here. Be, she says, oh, no, no, I, but I, I, I want you to tell them. I says, she, and then she, I said, uh, she said, because he listened to Country Crossroads every morning. <laughs> and they sometimes have gospel singing. And I says, let me ask you this. Is he going to be in heaven because I say he is? Or is he, going, is he not going to be in heaven because I'm saying he's not there? Does it matter what I say today if he's there or not? And she says, not really. I says, that's why I can't do that. I can't, I can't honor that because I don't know that. I wish I knew him. I wish I'd had a chance to talk to him before he died. And I've done guys who died. Their deathbed, and was asked because he they they were they were pagans, <laughs> but they got saved. But I could tell that story, and it's this reality of heaven and hell. And, and I've stood there with all likelihood the person that was the, whose body was in the casket in front of me was not in heaven, and that's a sobering thought. It's tragic. I'll finish up with this because this is kind of like 
you know, there's so much. I don't know the timing of all this. And this is where people get so rapture. When's rapture going to take place? Is you know, people like Israel became a nation in 1948, and everybody's like 40. That's why the guy wrote the thing that 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come in 88, because that was the 40th anniversary of Israel becoming a nation. And of course, Jesus didn't come in 88. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, and then people start, and and they just get the timing. And I'm not sure about the timing. I think, I think we. That's not what God wants us to focus on. What he wants us to focus on is we got today. And the way that people go to heaven is that they accept heaven's messenger who brought heaven's hope to us, who came down here to rescue us and die in our place and die for our sins and shed his blood so that we could be redeemed from our sins and our names written in the Lamb's book of life. And we have that to go on. And Revelation, Revelation is a complicated book when it comes to the timing of things. And I think we make a mistake when people want to say, I've got it figured out. Nobody has it figured out. No, nobody has everything figured out. All you have to do is read people and you think people are confused because nobody knows. But I want to take you to Revelation 20. And I'll close with this. Verse 11 this is the great tragedy. This is the great tragedy. This is going to be the most tragic thing we witness. And we will witness this. And we might see people that we recognize. He said, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. In verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. A judgment that was designed for the devil and his angels. And a mass of people Basically, when they rejected God's message, aligned themselves with God's adversary. And they joined God's adversary in that final judgment. Now, that ought to shake us to our core. And those of us who have relatives that are like this, we don't do them any favor by giving them the indication they're going to be okay if there's not any fruit of faith evident in their lives. We need to press the point. He says, well, that might drive them away. If they're away, they're away. And how will they know the worst thing we could do is give people false hope? 
That's the worst thing. And, and we're not intentionally doing it, but it's kind of like slamming the door. The conviction of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of God upon our lives. None of us came to Jesus without conviction. Every single one of us that, that cried out to God for him to save us were moved to do that. We didn't make a deal with God. He, he convicted us and we repented and, and his spirit came to live within us. And that's, that's salvation. That's how salvation is. And I, I want to encourage you that I was in a, a prayer meeting Monday morning at a, one of the churches, and, and the prayer meeting was kind of designed about, uh, surrounded about and focused on some of the confusion and division going on in our, in our country. And uh, in, in one little group that I was in praying, you know, it was talking about how, what, 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 why aren't we seeing and, and I say, we, why aren't we seeing a, a move of God? And, and I just said, I don't, I don't think we're into personal evangelism. I, I just don't think we're, we're witnessing like God wants us to, that we're not witnessing outside the church. We're waiting for people to come in so that we can witness to him. And that's, that's not how, we, we need some Joey Puckets. We, we need to become that person who's really intentional and says, Lord, I want, I want to witness to someone. Because of this, not, not to make the church grow, but because of this, because of this verse, it's, this is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. And wherever they go to church, wherever they land, you know, pray to God they'll be discipled. But you can't disciple someone who's lost. They have to, they have to find the Lord. They have to discover this wonderful joy of salvation. I don't know, if you want to pray for me, you pray for me to have a much more boldness in my life to witness. Wherever I'm at, you will receive power. Do this with me just for a moment. No, you don't have to repeat this. You know, I think all of you know the address where you live, the subdivision. I remember old, B.H. Clendenin had a lady come into his church and said, we was at a revival and this guy called me out and told me my address. And he says, you didn't know your address? I love it. <laughs> All right. L listen, he told people who lived in Jerusalem, he told people who lived in, in Jerusalem, You'll receive power at the Holy Spirit come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You'll receive power after His Spirit comes upon you, and you will become His witnesses in Lake Wildwood, in your subdivision, in your location, where you're at, where you work, where where you are at most of the time. And the spreading of the church went just that way. I mean, one of the neat things you see is this breakthrough in Samaria, right? And Simon the sorcerer's up there, he's trying to abide. And they go up there and they lay hands on people and they're getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden the church explodes and just goes to the ends of the earth. But it started right there. It started next door 
Would you stand with me? And I want to pray for God to use us next door. I told Brother Davis, I would love to go back to India. I probably wouldn't have the energy that I did in 2010. And I wouldn't have, well, I don't know if Sister Davis, Sister Davis kind of watched after me like a, like a hawk. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. That's not cooked. That's raw vegetables. Don't eat that. You can drink that. Don't drink that. And she had hand sanitizer. My hands were so clean. But she was like, I'm, I don't want you to get sick because John Loper got sick on her and he thought he was going to die. But she watched me. But, you know, we're, we're not going to India. We're just going next door. You probably don't even have to sanitize your hands to go next door. Lord, I pray. I just thank you for these, my brothers and sisters. I, am, I just praise you, Lord, that we're here tonight. It is cold. That wind is blowing, and yet here we are, but we want the wind of your Spirit to blow into our hearts so fresh and anew, O oh God, that our eyes are open and our mouths becomes anointed vessels in your hands, Lord, to just tell people that they matter to you, that you died on the cross for them. And they're all around us. They're, we can see that some of them are lost. We know some of them are lost. Lord, would you just commend our souls and our minds to be your witnesses? We need that. We need the boldness of the Holy Spirit. We need that power, that dunamis that you said would cause us to be able to do things that we can't do in ourselves. We're, there's some things about us that we're just weak about it. We, we may not be bold by nature, but Lord, you can give us boldness and you can anoint us. There's people we're going to encounter, not in our neighborhood only, but through the course of the day that you witness to us and this person is ready, this person is desperate. They may be on, on the edge of, of suicide and yet we are that one person that you put in front of them not to shut the door on them but to open the door and to say this is, this is where everything is healed and where everything works out is in your grace, Lord. I, I want us to have a great missions day Sunday but I want us to be great missionaries, Lord. Every day, every day. And I thank you for the men and women in this room. I'm praying, Lord, that you would equip them, all of us, to discover how we can be your vessels, your witnesses in our world. And that our sons and daughters, our children that are in impact and Royal Rangers and out in youth, that you would equip them likewise in their world to be witnesses of your grace. Protect us, Lord, through every wave of sickness that comes through homes. And I pray for Amber and Chad. I pray for the healing of little Alex and Emma Kate. Lord, we pray that you would just give our homes protection from sickness and ministry healing to your people so that we can be our very best for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.